0: We're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 44 and conquering lambs. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your word you have given us enough for our life and godliness. And as we're going to consider today, Lord, you have taught us how we can even come before you, how we can pour out our hearts and our emotions and our thoughts and our feelings in a way that honors you and it glorifies you. So, Lord, I pray as we look at this text here today that you would teach us and that you would instruct us and that you would help us to grow in our life and in our godliness even more. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen and amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, please open it to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. Hear what the Word of the Lord has to say to us now. O oh God, we have heard, heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you perform in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies are from our foes, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, and the derision and the scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. And yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and have covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget about our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. May God bless the preaching of his word and study of his word. And may God bless the hearing of his word. In August 2010, Brian Kelso, a Presbyterian pastor from Florida, traveled to Haiti to bring relief to pastors and people who were reeling from the hurricanes and the earthquakes there. Shortly after he returned, Kelso experienced fatigue, and then he broke out in a deadly fever. After driving to a nearby hospital, he was rushed into an intensive care unit where doctors labored to save his life from a dire case of malaria. And before long, his vital organs had shut down and Kelso was placed on life support. Medicine was then given that concentrated his blood flow on his core functions at the expense of his extremities, resulting in amputations to his feet, medical interventions that saved his life. And after he recovered, Pastor Kelso spoke about the weeks in which he had lingered hallucinating and he recounted that hallucination. Saying Many people talk about seeing a great light, but for me, I was in a very dark place, he says. A very, very dark place. In fact, I didn't know where I was, he says. It was dark, I was alone, and I have to tell you, I didn't feel the Lord's intimate presence. Pastor Kelso's experience connects us deeply with the point of Psalm 44, in which the author confesses abandonment by God. Why do you hide your face? He says, why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground, Psalm 44, 24 through 25 says. And this is because Psalm 44 expresses a deep lament from the one who trusted the Lord but suffered crushing circumstances of life. I think we can all relate to that. After all, millions of people in the last couple of years, perhaps those who you know died from COVID-19, and it's not even just COVID-19. Maybe you've lost a family member to cancer or memory, a memory disease or some other thing, a car accident, and on and on, and, and you know that life can crush you, and you might wonder in the midst of those circumstances, where is the Lord Is the Lord good? Is the Lord faithful? Is the Lord holy? Is he just? Is he perfect? Is the Lord good in all of his ways? And this is what this psalm is going to help us to address in our own lives. The hurts and the worry and the struggles of life. And now Psalm 44 breaks into three clearly recognizable sections for us. This first section looks back on the, on the glorious past in which God delivered his people with a saving mighty hand. The psalmist specifically recalls the conquest of the promised land under Joshua in Psalm 44, 1-2. It says, O oh God, we have heard with our ears, and our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in their days and the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. These words remind us that the Bible's message is rooted in God's mighty saving deeds in the history, in in history on behalf of his people. And we're going to see that now because the Israelites were commanded to pass down to their children the memory of how God broke the power of Pharaoh to set his people free, part of the Red Sea for their escape, provided food and water for them during the forty years in the desert, and cast down the great walls of Jericho by the power of God alone. Moses directed them in Deuteronomy six twenty through twenty one, which says, "When your son asks you in the time to come what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you will shall say to your son." We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Ola Palmer Robertson notes the value of following Moses' instruction and remembering prior instances of the grace of God when he says, Faith in the future must be awakened on the great works of God in the past, he says. And just as the psalmist tells us what he heard from his fathers about the conquest of Canaan, Christians are to remember and to pass on the great works in the person and work of jesus christ if joshua's typological salvation gave israel hope how much more confidence will be conveyed by its true fulfillment the conquest of sin by the perfect life and sin atoning death of god's son jesus christ and just as a psalmist heard of god's past saving works Our churches are to major not in telling sentimental stories or giving lifestyle tips or health tips even, or to be a social club, but proclaim the saving works of God from the Word of God all through the Bible, brought to consummation through the life and ministry of Joshua's greater son, Jesus Christ. What did the psalmist learn as he considered the exodus and even Joshua's victories? He learned the great truth of salvation by the sovereign grace of God alone. And he prays in Psalm 44, verse 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own army save them, but your right hand and your arm and the the light of your face, for you delighted in them. In fact, the very book of Joshua tells this story. The Israelites conquered the promised land not because they were stronger, more numerous, or even more skillful or advanced in education. God's power made the walls of Jericho fall down before them. God sent hailstones to rain on their enemy's head and even caused the sun to stand still to allow the Israelites to pursue their broken enemy. God shined the light of his face on Israel's army, which is a way of saying that he graciously revealed his favor in their time of need. Moses explained in Deuteronomy 7, 7-8, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And the same principle is taught in the New Testament regarding the salvation of sinners. Christians do not take possession of God's blessing by any merit or power of their own, but instead offer praise to the God of grace. Salvation is, as Psalm 44, verse 3, by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. And remembering God's act in history, this psalmist resolves to rely entirely on God and on God's grace. In Psalm 44, four through seven, he says, you are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Though you, we wish through which through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you saved us from the foes and have put to shame those who hate us. It is not that the Israelites did not wield bows or swords, but rather they trusted in God to give victory to their arms. We are to be diligent in the preaching of God's word and in prayer, and yet we do not trust in our preaching or our praying. We trust in the grace of God in Christ alone. The humblest humblest Christian can confidently rely on the power of God and in this way become strong for spiritual warfare in Christ. William Plummer observes that by the grace of God, every genuine child of God achieves victories more worthy of celebration than that of David over the lion, the bear, and the giant. And since we know that victory and salvation come from God alone, like the psalmist, we must resolve that the Lord alone receives all the glory. Psalm 44 verse 8 says, And God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Is that the disposition of your heart today before God? And do you know what 1 Thessalonians 5 tells you? That it is God's will, His explicit, specific will for you in Christ to be thankful. Now, for only to read the first eight verses of Psalm 44, we would classify Psalm 44 as a psalm of triumph and celebration. And yet the psalmist turns from a glorious past to a perplexing present marked by suffering and disgrace. No sooner does he boast about the sovereign grace of God than he complains in verse 9 of Psalm 44, but you have rejected us and disgraced us. There's a disconnect here between what he has heard and what he believes about God and the misery of God's people in his time. Now Psalm 44, 9-16, it catalyzed the woes of the people of God in six laments organized into three couplets. And the first couplet laments a military defeat in verses 9-10, through 10, which says, You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our enemies. You have made us turn back from the foe and from those who ha- hate us have gotten spoiled and scholars have tried to identify this event suggesting possibilities from as early as david's reign in the 10th century bc to the maccabean wars of the second century bc whatever whenever israel may have suffered this defeat it included second captivity and exile verse 11 you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations and this deal has caused some commentators to associate this psalm with one of the many deportations involved in the Babylonian exile. And whatever Gaul's the psalmist is, he can see no benefit that God gains by allowing this captivity. In verse 12, You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. As he sees fit, God's people have been virtually given away as if they were utterly worthless. And now the third lament is for the disgrace and the shame heaped on God's people. In verses 13 through 16, the psalmist says, You have made us, the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and the scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And these statements are similar to those threatened against Israel before the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah 24.9 says, I will make them a whore to all all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And this is what hell will be like for those who die with their sins unforgiven. Israel's defeat and exile offer a preview of hell for all to see. As people who were once displayed God's favor are made to be the object of ridicule because of God's divine curse on their sin. And now there's an important difference between the situation described in Psalm 44 and the Babylonian exile. The psalmist makes a claim that that would seem to be impossible for those who are being judged by God. Psalm 44, 17 through 18 says, And this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. And the psalmist is not making a spurious claim to being sinless here, but simply points out that in his generation had maintained true religion and was not chasing after idols, the latter simply being the primary cause of the Babylonian exile. Instead, he supports this claim by noting that if their sufferings were meant as a punishment, God would have informed them of their sin. In verses 20 through 21, he says, If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And this being the case, and since God had not denounced them for their sin, the psalmist could claim that his was a generation like the faithful faithful Israelites in the time of Joshua. And yet instead of victory, they were afflicted with defeat and disgrace. And now the psalm's statement about not being false to the covenant of God leads commentators to connect Psalm 44 to the Maccabean period when a faithful Jerusalem was torn into bloody shreds by a Greek deposit Antius IV Epiphanes. And the problem with this theory is that it's hard to see how a psalm written in the mid-2nd century BC could have gained inclusion in the Old Testament canon. And at the very least, we might say, the words of the Maccabeans, they illustrate the situation of Psalm 44. So much is this the case that we know that this psalm played an important role in the worship life of God's people during that painful period of its history. Antisius assaulted and sacked Jerusalem with a loss of 40,000 Jewish lives, and he suffered a humiliating defeat in Egypt. And during the Jewish revolt to overthrow Antisius, savage dep- deprivations and gross abominations were inflicted on a generation of God's people that had been relatively faithful to the Lord. You see, the experience of the Maccabean Jews and of Psalm 44 shows us that God's most faithful servants experienced devastating blows and the reason why these calamities come is not always obvious at the time the only thing the people of god can do in such circumstances is cry out to the lord in the integrity of their souls it's sorely perplexed and his suffering the psalm cry psalmist cries out to the lord in the final section of our psalm in verses 23 through 24 saying awake why are you sleeping O lord why do you hide your face why do you forget are affliction and oppression. It's no wonder, John Calvin writes, that if the faithful, even in prayer, have in their hearts divers and conflicting affections, and when suffering like people in Psalm 44, and having begun with the celebration of the past and having offered a a complaint about the present, the psalmist concludes his psalm with a plea for the future in verses 25 through 26, where he says, For our souls bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And now with these words, the psalmist ends the psalm, apparently not having received any answer from the Lord. And the question of Psalm 44, why a Lord, is one that many Christians today ask. We hear of miss- missionaries who are sacrificed their lives for the gospel and yet find that they are unable to bear children. The prayer warrior of a church is struck down by a drunk driver and k- killed. A Christ-hearted pastor, such as Brian Kelso labels for the poor in Haiti only to be bitten by a malaria-infected mosquito and then to linger in dark hallucinations without any light from God. Uh, we see many, many people who have died from COVID-19 and cancer and dementia and Alzheimer's, and the list goes on and on and on. And we ask, why, O oh Lord? It, we might wonder, is God asleep? Do we need to shout to rouse the Lord from to his duty? Has he hidden his face or somehow forgotten his servants? And yet Christians have long sought answer to the suffering of faithful followers of Christ. And when we cry out, why God is this happening to me? Psalm 44 answers with three important points that can help us. First, the psalmist describes his situation The will of God, he ascribes his situation to the will of God because he knows that his lot is cast by the Lord, and thus he concerns himself more with the will of God than the actions of wicked men. Notice in Psalm 44 9 through 16 how clearly he sees his plight as coming from the Lord. You have rejected us. You have made us turn back from the foe. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations, the psalmist says. And in this way, what the psalmist does is he refutes two false ways of preserving God from blame for the suffering of innocence. One false approach was given by Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner's belief in God was shaken by the trials he had suffered until he concluded that God simply is not able to control the factor of our lives. We can escape the conundrum of Psalm 44, Kushner would argue, simply by rewording verses 9 through 16 so that God is not seen as the cause of our troubles. And that's not a way to deal with this. A second false way of denying is is of denying God's control is known as open theism a teaching that has been popularized among some American evangelicals in this view God is not responsible for our plight not because of a lack of power but rather because of a lack of knowledge God does not know the future since the future is created by the free will choices of men so that God like us can respond to evil only after the fact this is heresy because it places human will above the will of God and it ignores the overwhelming biblical testimony to the exhaustive foreknowledge of an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present God. Paul asserts that things happen according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Isaiah 42, 8-9 says, I am the Lord, God proclaims, Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And both Rabbi Kushner and opponents of open theism consider the sovereignty of God a problem when life seems grossly unfair and intensely painful. But is it? Well, not according to the psalmist, who knows that God ordains all, thi- all things in our life and in his life for our good and for his glory. That great pastor, James Boyce, and theologian, explained the psalmist's point of view when he said this. Although it makes the situation puzzling, the realization that God is in control is still both the proper way to approach such problems and the only possible way to find a solution to them. The secularist, he says, has nowhere to turn. Not only does he not have an answer, he does not even have a way of finding one. How terrifying it would be if the holy, the merciful God were not in control of our lives, if instead we were the subject only to the pitless powers that afflict us. And now, secondly, the psalmist frankly admits God's sovereignty in his suffering, and he continues noting that suffering may occur even when God is not punishing his people. He says in verse 17 of Psalm 44, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant and it's true that god sometimes chastises his people as hebrews 12 6 says but not all suffering can be ascribed to this cause and to be sure all sin we must say offends god and deserves his just wrath but this truth answers rabbi kushner's question about why bad things happen to good people for in truth there are no good people the bible reveals and. In uh, Romans 3.23 and 6.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. And the real mystery then is not why the Holy God allows us to suffer, but why he has not already cast us into an eternity in hell. The mystery we should ponder is not why bad things happen to good people, but why good things happen to bad people. God's wrath is easy to understand once we understand the truth about our sin and about the holiness of God. Only grace is a true mystery in the dealings of God with mankind. And how can God allow people to suffer even when they're not being judged? And one answer was given by Jesus in response to his disciples' question about a man who had been blind from birth. John 9 2 says, Who sinned this man were his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered that sin was not the cause at all, but that the man's suffering had been ordained, that the works of God might be displayed in him, John 9 3. And when we are caused to suffer, our first concern should not be, Why is this happening to me? But how can I glorify God in this trial? In some cases, God ordains suffering in order to strengthen our faith, as first Peter 1 6 through 7 tells us. And in this, with this in mind, afflicted Christians should ask, How is God going to use this trial to help me to grow in him? And the psalmist's third statement about his suffering is the most important. He states in Psalm 44, 22, And yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, our suffering is ultimately for the sake of God. God's people suffer in order that his glory might be seen through our faith. We experience trials because God insists on making us holy. And ultimately, believers suffer as part of God's grand plan to restore all things to the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And by the end of his composition, the psalmist has not solved all the mysteries of suffering and evil, but he knows enough to cry out to God for the sake of your steadfast love. Psalm 44, 26. That is the said of God. That is the covenant love of God that is grounded in the revealed character of God in the Word. And now he does not know exactly why he's suffering, the psalmist doesn't, But he knows that his life is being shaped by God's will and for God's sake. And therefore, he appeals to God's steadfast love. And we who have suffered, we who have gone through a thing or two, we who have walked through COVID-19, you who perhaps have walked with somebody who has experienced cancer or dementia or Alzheimer's or chronic grief and illness and suffering, you have done the same and you are to do the same. And while Psalm 44 ends with the, without the psalmist receiving an answer to his plea, his cry is taken up later in the Bible. In Romans 8, the apostle Paul addressed the persecution of Christians with reference to Psalm 44 when he says in Romans 8, 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And Paul's answer quotes Psalm 44:22. 22. In Romans 8.36, which says, as is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, Paul's question concerns the possibility of believers being separated from Christ's love. And his answer is that God ordained believers to join Christ in suffering. Jesus was above all the sheep offered for slaughter, and we are drawn to Christ by suffering with him and for his gospel. This is the solution to the news reports that missionaries have been gunned down or abused in the very lands to which they had lovingly taken Christ's gospel. This is the explanation for a Christian wife who was rejected by her husband for witnessing to the gospel, and on and on and on. How can God allow such suffering for his people? And Paul wrote in Philippians one twenty nine. For the sake of Jesus who died for you, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not believe only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so where then do we find strength to suffer for Christ? And the answer is in the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ. And Paul adds in Romans 8:37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See Psalm 44, it shows us three ways in which we can conquer while suffering for the sake of christ first we conquer by calling on the lord in prayer as a psalmist does in these verses as calvin says it is a true test of our piety when being plunged into the lowest depths of disasters we lift up our eyes our hopes and our prayers to god alone and you might object that you do not feel the presence of god in the midst of your suffering well neither did brian kelso as he lingered in the valley Of the shadow of death, and he testified. I did not know where I was. It was dark and I was alone. And I have to tell you, I didn't feel the Lord's intimate presence, he says. But I also have to tell you that I knew he was with me. I knew he hadn't forsaken me. God's word tells us that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then Kelso then applied this truth as a challenge to his own church. And he says, I am here this morning to encourage you to grow in your faith to the point where you have confidence in the Lord that he is with you even when you go through your darkest hours. The Lord is with you even when you don't feel his intimate presence. He has promised you, he's promised that just as we walk through the darkest moments of our lives, that he is with us. That promise should give us great confidence. It should fortify our faith to know that the Lord is always with us. And Being fortified by the word, we will conquer first through prayer and second by holding firm to our faith in God's word revealed in scripture. And what a blessing it was to the psalmist in his distress that he could honestly say that he had not been forsaken by God. And what misery of despair must have fallen on his soul if he had renounced his faith. You see, the Christian life is a calling to be faithful to Christ amid the sorrow and amid the troubles of life. Jesus said this in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Christians are more than conquerors, Romans 8:37. not by avoiding trials or minimizing them, but by upholding our faith in the gospel, for which we offer even our very life's blood. And third, we are, we are led like lambs to the slaughter, because Christians conquer by prizing the Lord Jesus above all the pleasures and all the treasure of the world. In fact, John the Baptist suffered unjustly because of his godliness, and when he was about to be executed, he sent messengers to Jesus with one urgent question. John did not ask, why is this happening, or how is this going to pan out and work out? Instead, Matthew eleven three says, are you the one who is to come? And Jesus informed his disciples that John the Baptist was the greatest man to be born up to that time, and yet John could face torment only if he could be sure of the Savior. Jesus, therefore, sent word to John, confirming himself as God's Son and the Christ. You see, like John the Baptist, we should find that knowing Jesus is more than enough for us to face all that the world, the worst that the world may give us and may throw at us and all the trials that God may sovereignly ordain for our good and for our salvation. Matthew Matthew 16, 25 says, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Jesus promised. Yes, for his sake, we are by God's will like sheep for the slaughter. And yet because the lamb to whom we are joined and united to by faith is enthroned in heaven, in all these things we are more than conquerors, conquering lambs through him who loved us, Romans 8.37 says. And today that is such encouraging news. Because maybe you feel like the Lord is disinterested in you, and yet the Word of God declares the immutability of His revealed character. That is, that God is unchanging. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 90, the Word of God says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what that means, Christian, is that you can take to bring the Word of God for your life and for your godliness. That means that, like Titus 1-2 says, God will not lie, does not lie. And what that means is that he will always act consistently, and he will always act coherently with his revealed character in the Word. And that's exactly what we've considered today. And that's exactly why, even as the psalmist here expresses a deep lament, even as he does that, he expresses a deep trust. In the Lord in the crushing circumstances of our lives. And above all, there was one who was crushed and who was pierced in our place and for our sin. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And because of Jesus, we have hope. We have life not just in the presence and for the present, but forever in heaven. Where Paul says in Ephesians 1, we are seated with Christ in God. That is, we have hope now. And that God is taking the circumstances and the situations that we are going through, and he is using them to conform our life now in the present, in the various situation and stages and spheres of our life, to grow to be like Christ. And yet in the future, we will be utterly glorified. We will be like Jesus. And that is such good news. Paul said in 2 Timothy four eight that he eagerly longed for that day, that day of the Lord, that day when Christ will fully establish his kingdom, when there will be no sin no more, no more tears will be shed. Only worship and honor and glory and power will be given to our God and to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. Man, what a day that is. Let us eagerly long for that day as even today, we make disciples who make disciples and call men and women everywhere to repent and to believe and to trust in this suffering Messiah, this Lord, this King, this God who alone can save and satisfy. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you that you are a conquering King, and yet you came as a baby born in a manger under the sentence of debt to pay the penalty for us in our place to be buried and to rise again on the third day. And so we will sing hallelujah to you and that you alone are worthy to be praised. And so Lord, help us, help us to fix our eyes as Hebrews 12:1 through two says on the author and finisher of our faith. And may the response of our hearts be one of singing, one of endless joy one of celebrating the goodness and the faithfulness of God. For you are good, God. You are holy. You are just. And you are perfect. And even in the midst of, of the circumstances of our lives, which we may or may not understand, you are working through and in and by your providence in the midst of history for our good and for the good of those who love you and call on your name. You are. You take what was meant for evil and you turn it around in your sovereign hand, and you use it for our good to conform us to be more like Christ. So, Lord, we are we are thankful. We are thankful for your goodness. We are thankful for your faithfulness. Help us, Lord, to posture our hearts in humility and trust and dependence on the grace and the mercy and the kindness of our Lord and of our King, As revealed in the Word of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at ServantsOfGrace.org.